Welcome to the podcast, From Crisis to Connection. I'm Jeff Stewart, licensed marriage and family therapist, and I'll be bringing the professional perspective. I'm Jody Stewart, unlicensed wife, mother, daughter, sister, friend, and neighbor, and I'll be bringing the regular everyday perspective. We are all about relationship recovery, and we'll tackle tough topics like infidelity, abuse, addiction, pornography, and betrayal trauma. We also focus on helping you build stronger connections in your most important relationships. So thanks for joining us. We're glad you're here. Well, everybody, welcome back. We're so glad you're here with us again. Yeah, welcome. It's always good to be with you every single week. And this week, we have a really uh, important topic. So many of the audience that we work with, of course, are working through healing from the impact of pornography, sexual betrayal, and those kinds of things in their own relationships. And so many times over the years as I've worked with people, they they often talk about this as they, they sort of view it almost like a victimless kind of thing, where it's just like it just impacts me or maybe my marriage, but mm-hmm. they really see it almost kind of more of a localized kind of thing. And today we're going to expand that out and really pull back the curtain on really sort of the dark side, if you want to call it that, of pornography, of the industry that produces it, and most importantly, the victims that are exploited and those who exploit them. And what is being done behind the scenes, often completely out of view of most of us, to bring these people to accountability, to protect victims, and to deal with some very real life and serious consequences of for what most people just feels like harmless adult entertainment. And yeah, so we, we have brought on the uh, episode today, Danny Pinter, and Jody's going to introduce her, and we're going to talk really in depth about these issues and what you can do as an individual to really help support those who have been impacted by pornography and all the the dark things that go along with it. Yeah. Okay. So I'll I'll tell you a little bit about Danny before we jump in. So Danny Pinter serves as senior legal counsel for NACOSI, which is the National Center on Sexual Exploitation. And in this role, Danny drafts and consults on state legislation to support victims of sexual exploitation and to hold exploiters accountable. She also contributes as a voice of human dignity on precedent-setting legal cases on behalf of victims of sexual abuse and exploitation. And here's something really exciting. I mean, that's exciting already, but even more exciting about Danny. She drafted the first piece of legislation recognizing the public health impacts of pornography. Yeah, that's incredible. And this piece of legislation has since been adopted in more than a dozen states, which is fantastic. So. Danny, welcome. Excellent work. We're so thrilled to have you on the podcast with us today. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here and talking with you all today. Great. So let's dive right in. We we would love just to know, first of all, I mean, so many people probably wonder what exactly is kind of the scope of, of what you guys do and what this problem is. Again, like I said in the introduction, so many people are just being told that pornography is just you know, a bunch of harmless adult entertainment. And if you don't want to look at it, don't look at it and just move on with your life. Yeah, and very but, consensual. Yeah. And we know that that's just not true. Yeah. I think that's a really, really important point for people to recognize that, you know, first of all, even if we're talking about the quote unquote professional pornography industry, studies have shown that 80% or more of those involved are actually victims of childhood sexual abuse come from a very vulnerable place. And then often you'll hear 
from many who have come out of how exploitive and harmful it was, how they were taken advantage of, how drugs and abuse was just ever present within that industry. But what I really want people to recognize is that today, the mainstream pornography industry is not necessarily professional. The biggest websites in the world are pornography tube sites, meaning that they allow anyone to upload anything, anytime. So often you're actually watching real people being raped and abused. And sometimes you're watching kids. Um, we have a class action lawsuit on behalf of all minors who are exploited on Pornhub, which is the largest pornography website in the world. And two of our clients were minors. So those who are watching that material, I mean, those were kids. That is technically child pornography. Yeah. So what you're saying basically is that where a lot of people think these are professional studios with professional actors, with contracts, and they're just producing their own content and they just upload it online and then people get to watch these people. And so, you know, it's kind of like just a really dirty version of Hollywood. And you're saying it's not even close to that. These are, these are people close. that are, it's stuff that's being cold and uploaded often illegally without people's consent, just distributed without people's participation or consent. Exactly. These websites have done absolutely nothing to verify who's in the videos. Nothing. They would allow anyone with a cell phone to upload sexually explicit content within minutes and it would be live. They allow people to download that content so then it can be redistributed in infinity. And, you know, even to this day, you know, there's a lot of heat on Pornhub specifically, you know, as the other websites, for example, X videos and X hamster. Those are websites that are just as large and um, have just as much traffic as Pornhub. They're doing nothing. So that's still status quo on those websites. Anyone can upload anything. They are not verifying who's in those videos. But even with the mainstream website Pornhub, they're still, their verification process does not involve verifying every single person in the video. That is not something that they do. And like I said, with those other websites, they're not verifying anything. It's just anyone. And I mean, some examples are there is this one account that, you know, he just goes and picks up prostituted persons off the street and videotapes them in his car. This account, he in one of his titles, even said that he picked up a, a runaway high school student. So anyone watching those, I mean, that's not a fantasy. Those are real people. And you don't even know if they're adults. And that is the majority of this content. And it's so difficult to tell, you know, it's often pitched and sort of advertised as some sort of fetish, you know, whether it's webcam content. So, for example, in South Carolina right now, there is a lawsuit on behalf of nine women. They were just college field hockey players, went to play field hockey. And a creep put a hidden camera in the locker room, filmed them showering and changing and put that on X Hamster, put that on Pornhub. Those women obviously did not consent to that. You can tell on the face of the video, but it's a entire niche, an entire genre on X Hamster, voyeur porn or hidden camera pornography. That's an entire genre that people are looking to. And you don't know who's consenting and who's not. Honestly, most of the time, not right when we're talking about the type of content. And I'm guessing that most of the the stuff that probably is the most popular is the stuff that really looks more, that that is more real, if you will, right? That's more exploitive because that has a higher tendency to be more forbidden, more dangerous, exactly. produces much more intensity for the viewer, for those people that are tired of maybe something that maybe looks produced or fake in their eyes. And so exactly. there's a higher demand for sexual crimes. Yeah, from the industry's own statistics, amateur was one of the most popular search terms 
along with teen, unfortunately. And you're absolutely right with the way that this content is so freely available, so ubiquitous. Unfortunately, that has led to this desensitization. People are watching it quickly get desensitized. And so they're looking for more and more extreme content, more that pushes the borders, like you said. And the idea that you're looking at a real person is much more attractive, unfortunately, than this, you know, more professional type content. Yeah. So, so maybe you could tell us a little bit more about how difficult it is to hold companies like this accountable and how the work that you're doing matters so much here. You know, part of the reason we've gotten where we are today is something called CDA 230. It was a law passed back in 1996, the Communications Decency Act by Congress, and actually an attempt to protect kids. You know, this was the early days of the internet and already there was an outcry of, you know, kids are going to be exposed to bad things and how can we protect them? And so this law was passed Unfortunately, it had First Amendment issues and was struck down. The entire law was struck down except for one provision, which was meant to be sort of a compromise with the tech industry saying, you know, if you are in good faith monitoring content, you can't be held liable for what others post. You know, that makes sense, right? On its face, it sounds like common sense. But the result has been that the court cases have interpreted that to mean full immunity for websites. So essentially, that's turned into if you have a website and someone does something bad on your website, that's just not your fault. That's just not your problem. Even if you know about it, you know, really in any situation, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. And so we've gotten to this place where even though that shouldn't have affect criminal investigation enforcement, it did sort of sent this whole message to everyone, including federal law enforcement that, you know, we just don't hold websites accountable. And so that has led to this extreme place we're in now where there's sort of open and notorious sex trafficking exploitation and websites just say it's not our problem, even when they're knowingly facilitating it. And that becomes an issue because they benefit financially, right? Because the videos are such a draw. Exactly. And so they're actually developing this. You know, that's what we've seen with some of these pornography websites is they saw that's a financial opportunity and have developed this market And it's gotten to such a huge degree. I mean, some of the most popular websites are the most trafficked websites in the world. Top 11 most visited websites. And the American audience is the number one audience by far, by far, I will mention as well. So these are foreign websites primarily that are targeting a U.S. market and exploiting a lot of times U.S. victims. And we've essentially done nothing about it. Luckily, in 2018... Congress did amend 230 to say that under the sex trafficking statute, you cannot financially benefit and still have immunity. So that's where we are filing these lawsuits. That's where we've seen a crack and we're going to make it a huge river, a huge opportunity for victims. And so that's where we're filing these lawsuits. But we hope that we can also kind of turn the tide on the way courts even interpret CDA 230. We're seeing that as well. We're seeing that these cases are going to the appeals court. The Supreme Court today accepted a 230 case for the first time since that law was originally analyzed back in 1996. So we really do think the time has come where this immunity will end. We're very hopeful of that. But Well, almost 30 years of basically just letting out this long line of being able to do whatever you want 
Because, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I studied communications in, in college and, you know, I know that this was back in the, the late 90s, early, you know, mid 90s. And they were talking about this stuff and basically said, it's only as good as the enforcement, you know, and so there's and, and they're not enforcing this stuff at all. And you're saying that that has been the case on the federal level, but there are no cases where there's there been any kind of enforcement around around pr basically pornography. All kinds of federal laws that could be enforced are not being enforced right. against the Internet. You know, we're taking civil opportunities on behalf of victims where we see this opportunity with FOSTA-SESTA, which was the amendment. But in meanwhile, I mean, the feds could have been investigating these websites for all kinds of, you know, sex trafficking violations, obscenity violations, you name it. 230 is not supposed to immunize any type of federal criminal crime. So that is, you're absolutely right. That's just a political will issue. That's just an enforcement issue. Wow. Yeah, it's amazing how slow those wheels have turned. And so the, the work that you guys are doing is putting this, I mean, is this why this is in front of the Supreme Court now? Because of the work that you guys are doing and others like you? No, there are a lot of people that have been kind of pushing the boundaries of 230, thankfully. Um, the case that is finally at the Supreme Court actually involves a terrorist statute where terrorists were able to kind of use social media to hurt people. And those plaintiffs are claiming, you know, the websites knew that their algorithms were kind of facilitating these connections and profiting. And so they should be accountable. We'll see what the Supreme Court does with that. We've been doing something similar, but using the sex trafficking statute and sort of trying to demonstrate that these websites know that they are facilitating sex trafficking, that they are distributing child pornography and they're profiting from it and they should not be able to do that. So we have a case actually at the Ninth Circuit right now against Twitter. Many don't realize that Twitter, although in the news for a myriad of reasons, it actually allows as a matter of policy, hardcore pornography. There is just as much pornography on Twitter. You could see any manner of content on Twitter that you would see on any other pornographic website, like complete. Wow. Yeah, completely open to pornography. They do absolutely no age verification, consent verification. They do nothing. You could upload anything. And unless, you know, you get lucky with maybe a federal takedown notice, um, that stuff's not coming down. And in the case of our clients, they were two 13 year old boys who were blackmailed and, and extorted by adult predators into creating what is a child pornography. You know, these are 13 year olds too. And if you really think about that, you know, how young 13 year old boys look, this was very obviously child pornography in the first place should not have made it on Twitter in the first place, but it did it was circulating all over Twitter. Um, the child was frantically um, reaching out to Twitter, begging that this content come, come down. He was being harassed at school. He actually got to the point of being suicidal. Luckily, a fellow parent called his mom and said, you know, your son's so upset. You need to check in with him. And she did and found out what was going on, came alongside him. She's frantically reporting to Twitter. So imagine, you know, your child, there's child pornography of your child. Your child is in such distress. He's suicidal. You think I'm going to report to the platform that this is child pornography. I mean, the worst thing could possibly be, certainly this will be off within hours. No response. She's totally ignored. Finally, he reports again. They say, well, you need to prove it's you. Send us your ID. So they, they leave it live. Meanwhile, while this is happening, he's luckily was 16. You know, if he was 13, I don't really know what he would have done because 13 year olds don't have IDs. But luckily, he was 16. 
where he was, he had a driver's license. He provided it and emphasized, you know, I'm a minor now. I was even younger then. Like I was forced and threatened to make this material in the first place. Like, please remove it. Again, Twitter took its time getting back to him and said, we reviewed it. Doesn't violate our policies. Staying up. Left it up. It had over 161,000 views. Actually, 167,000 views. This is child pornography. They're notified. And they left it up. You know, that's not a mistake at that point. It's extremely disturbing. And it's because they have now, as you guys were getting at, a vested interest in this pornographic content. They are not incentivized to go around policing it. They don't want to. And a recent report came out that it makes up about 13%. I might have that. It might be more than that. I might have that wrong. But a pretty significant portion of all their content is pornographic content. Now, if they go around policing it, making sure it's not kids, they're going to decrease that yeah. content. So they're not going to do it. They're, they're financially incentivized to look the other way and at the expense of these children. And so we have sued them under the Trafficking Victims Protection Act. The court actually agreed with us. You know, we had we sued them in Silicon Valley in their home court and the federal court agreed. Yeah, this is you knowingly sex traffic these kids. I don't know, by, financially benefited from the sex trafficking of these kids. You know, this case gets to move forward and Twitter still won't accept that. They ask for an extraordinary appeal. They say they have 230 protection. It's just not their problem. They did nothing wrong. So we're at the Ninth Circuit right now. And, you know, if we don't win there, we will, of course, absolutely be taking the Supreme Court. We're hopeful we will win. But yeah, that's this is definitely the, the sort of topic of the day with the courts right now. That is so hard to stomach. It really, really is. You know, you would just think that protecting children, common sense, that we'd all be on the same page about that. but. They, they really, they really just don't care. I mean, they care about their bottom line. That's what they care about. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, someone listening to this right now, I mean, I'm sure, you know, if you're listening to this in the audience, you would be, you know, it's understandable that you might be wringing your hands and wondering what you can do oh, yeah. when I you mean, hear something like this. I'm, I'm even just thinking on a whole different level of how helpless I felt when I've had an issue that's had to do with Google or Amazon. And, and I've been like, how do you... How do we get the kind of help we need with such a huge monster that really doesn't care who we are? But on this kind of level, it's just absurd. It's sickening, yeah. That that there are no are seemingly no resources for victims of this kind of thing. Yeah, it is scary. I mean, I Nicosi, we bring these lawsuits, so of course, if you've ever been a victim of this, please reach out to us. We think these lawsuits, you know, when corporations actually are hit in their bottom line, unfortunately, then they seem to care. We also think these lawsuits are good at raising awareness. So Mm -hmm. we think they're important. But we also have a corporate advocacy side. So in that side, we garner up the energy from parents like you and bring that to the corporation. So, you know, with Google, for example, we, you know, we provide things that people at home can do. So, you know, we always have these sort of actions you can take. So one, I think, was we were sending a a significant purposeful email. So you could sign up. So Google was getting hundreds of emails about the first thing. One of the things we did was, hey, if you're going to be giving devices to kids, because we know during the pandemic, Google was actually providing a ton of devices for free to schools, Mm -hmm. but with no like parental controls. Right. No resources for the schools to lock down these devices or anything like that which is a complete disaster and should have been the first thing they were thinking about. If they're going to give a device to to kids, how do we make it safe? Mm -hmm. So we really, really pressed on them 
to default to safety. To if this device is going to a kid, have it locked down. If the administrator or the parent wants to change those settings, they can. But make it easy for them and just have it locked down in the first place so they know they don't have to take the time to figure this out with each device because most likely they want it to be locked down. They want it to be safe. They want to know when they hand the device to the kid that it's safe. And so actually when, you know, this year Google announced that all of their devices going to kids would be defaulted to safety and lockdown. So there are things you can do. And when Google realizes there's going to be public pressure, that people care and are going to be upset, it's going to be a bad look for them. We can make them make those changes. So definitely using your voice and Nicosi can help harness that and you won't be alone. We're able to kind of convert, you know, effectively convert those into changes. So parents don't have to just sit around and feel like they're just, I mean, obviously we're outnumbered and, you know, they're they're very smart and powerful corporations that are obviously clearly good at at dodging accountability. But you're saying you guys are organized enough and know what to pay attention to and have very direct action items that people can do to start influencing change, not to mention donating money to Nicosi and helping, helping fund some of these lawsuits and, you know, your, your guys' efforts. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. We have a Dirty Dozen event every year. So if you you go to our website, look up the Dirty Dozen, what we do with that campaign is sort of shame these corporations who are not doing what it takes. And that's kind of how one way we see change. So and that's how we engage people. So that's where you'll see, you know, we had Google on the on the Dirty Dozen list. And so then they don't want to be on that list, right? And they're getting hundreds of emails from parents. And that's where we see the changes. So definitely go to our website. We have action items for you to do and also resources where parents can kind of find tools, find help when they're feeling overwhelmed. We know that, you know, even just trying to set up your kids parental controls on their phone was like 22 steps and took 15 minutes. You know, we provide help and resources for things like that. That's so, fantastic. So the Dirty Dozen, yeah. You tell us more about that because I've, I've heard of it, but yeah. I'd love our audience to, to learn more about it. Like, mm-hmm. tell us about that. And some of the companies, like what, what are you guys doing with that? Yeah. So the Dirty Dozen list is a campaign where we named the 12 corporations we feel that year have been complicit in, you know, their policies and, you know, facilitating exploitation. So we pick mainstream companies who we believe can do better, should do better, that they want to do better. You know, that their policies don't support, you know, sort of this incongruence. So one example was Google, but here I'll pull up our dirty dozen right now. I know another one of our targets was, it's interesting because we're talking about, you know, the internet and sort of this lack of accountability. So VeriSign was one of the defendant, one of the companies we targeted. And most people have never heard of VeriSign, but VeriSign is key to like the infrastructure of the entire internet. VeriSign manages all of the dot-com websites, they're sort of at the top of the chain of making those websites, those infrastructure for those websites. And so we were calling them out and we're saying, you know, you do nothing to make sure, you know, there's not child pornography, there's not these exploitive sites. Like you could turn off, you know, when all of this sort of was coming out about Pornhub, that there was all this trafficking exploitation, like they could have shut that website down in a, in a click, in a minute, in a second, they could have. Or just stop providing infrastructure for that website. Um, you know, they had the power to do that. So we called them out. You know, there's a, many egregious websites on dot coms. Like we know that the reality is the Department of Justice has said and the National Center for Missing Exploited Children has said that there's such a child pornography problem that they actually 
have to prioritize cases of just very young children being very violently assaulted. So that means, you know, kids above like five aren't even getting investigated because there's so many horrific cases of child exploitation. And the Canadian Center for Child Protection has released data that shows most child pornography is actually on the clear web, the web that we use every day. It's not a dark web problem, actually, because a dark web doesn't have the infrastructure of the regular internet. So it really can't support like streaming content. All the bad actors go on there and discuss where to find child pornography. It's the infrastructure of like VeriSign and Cloudflare and Amazon Web Services, you know, these big, powerful companies that make our internet run really well. They're actually supporting the websites that have all this content. You know, if they really made an effort to not allow this content, to police it, to shut it down, it wouldn't be proliferating to the extent it is today. So, you know, that's just one example of kind of targeting those corporations we think have the power to really create a lot of change. Like they could really throw a wrench in the plans of these exploiters and abusers, bad actors, like you're saying, they could, with the push of a few buttons, they could really eliminate a lot of the flow and the ease that they have access to in terms of uploading content, streaming content, facilitating payments, et cetera. And they just choose to turn a blind eye to it. Exactly. Like most people don't realize Amazon, you know, we all know and love Amazon, we buy stuff on their platform, but they actually are one of the biggest web hosts. So they host, they have like cornered the market on hosting websites. So as a result, they actually host most of the pornography websites on the internet today. And so we said, you know, you should have a policy where you don't host a pornography website unless they verify agent consent. They just had that policy. Imagine the ripple effect. They could force these websites to do what they're not doing. So that's the kind of that's the way that we sort of target these corporations and, and with the dirty dozen list with these specific asks that are completely doable and that would have a huge effect. So people can find the dirty dozen list. They can just Google dirty dozen, Nicosi, and yeah, find yeah, it. I can, uh, and you guys do it every yeah, single can, year, right? We do. Yep. I will get the exact, I should know and it. And the public oh. shaming of it is powerful in the sense that these companies are being associated with basically criminal activity. Exactly. And um, we have, we get a lot of wins this way. Like, that's great. Like I explained, you know, Google now, all of their devices, they have many devices, many different versions. Any ones going to kids or going to schools are going to be safe now because of this. But we've also targeted like social media sites, like Instagram has made a lot of changes to be more safe. Of course, there's always more that we want, but yes. So the, let me uh, get the exact web address for you, but we do this every year and um, you can see concrete ways that you can make change. I love it. This is powerful stuff mm-hmm. because, you know, you look at these corporations and you think there's nothing we can do and just call right, them out because, on this stuff. Because they're organized mm-hmm. and because they have deep pockets, but Nicosi is organized. It's a great yeah. format for like-minded people to gather together and have an influence. So it's nsexualexploitation.org slash dirty dozen list. Okay. Yeah, we'll include that in the show notes. Yeah. nsexualexploitation.org forward slash forward slash. So, some, dirty so dozen. oftentimes just being on the list gives the company enough bad press that they'll just start taking strides toward making these kinds of changes. Yes. Actually, you know, we send a letter usually asking for certain changes. We'll send a letter saying we're considering putting you on the list if you don't make certain changes. <laughs> okay. And sometimes we get changed before just the fact that they're being considered for the list yeah. 
We've seen changes. That's fantastic. And I've seen where you guys have then followed up with companies that do changes and you guys do like publicly praise them for the changes that they've made, right? Absolutely. Yeah, we always really praise them for making the changes. We also have a dignity defense alert where we just, it's just a positive campaign where we see a company that's actually doing the right thing in a space that no one else is. And we really praise them and encourage that. So absolutely. I love it. Yeah. Can I switch topics, Joe? Yeah. So I want to go back to, I guess, I do want to talk about the public impact, health impact of pornography that you've written extensively about. And I, I do want to talk about that in a minute, but I want to go back, want to follow up on one last thing. When you were talking about filing lawsuits on behalf of victims of sexual exploitation, and that's the only way that a lot of these companies will respond is when you hit them with the bottom line. I know that you guys also provide support and care for victims as well in terms of mental health treatment and and other resources that get them some sort of help. Is that correct? You guys also, you're not just taking on the companies, but you're also trying to help get them some support. Is that, do I understand that correctly? Well, we're not direct service providers, but we run a coalition. So we have sort of what Nicozy sees itself as is we're a leader in the movement and we bring the movement together. So we, like one of the big things about on the Cozy's mission is connecting the dots of all forms of exploitation. So we don't just focus on sex trafficking. We don't just focus on pornography. We talk about all of it and how we really believe they're connected. Childhood sexual abuse, sex trafficking, pornography, they're all connected and they're related. And so as part of that, as we run a coalition that has over 600 member groups from all around the world, many of those are service providers. So we kind of bring these groups together. When people come to us, We make referrals to groups that do that particular thing. We host a summit every year. Our summit, it's the C-Summit, Coalition to End Sexual Exploitation Summit. It's coming up in November where we bring all these organizations together. The leaders get together. And it's an opportunity for us all to share ideas, to learn from each other, to connect. It's also open to the public. So it's a really good educational opportunity. We're doing it virtually. Uh, We've done it virtually the past couple of years because of... COVID-19, but it's it's amazing because it really allows people who wouldn't be able to fly to DC to connect, to watch these um, different presentations, to learn about what's going on, to learn about the organizations that exist out there and the work that everyone's doing. So that's sort of the way that we serve all the victims, you know, besides representing them or holding these exploiters accountable. Yeah, that's powerful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that because like you said, you know, they are so interconnected because child sexual abuse, you know, is not just a standalone thing, especially if it's being filmed. They call it child pornography. It's really, like you said, child sexual abuse images or videos that now becomes another problem. And then it just carries on from there. And so everybody has to be talking to each other. Exactly. And, you know, we've seen in so many cases, you might have an adult sex trafficking victim, and then you find out that their exploitation started long before they were an adult. Because child sexual abuse really makes them vulnerable to later abuse and traffickers target them. They, they suss that out. They find that and use it against them again. Yeah. Well, it's really remarkable what you're able to do. And it's just so timely, so necessary. And I think part of the reason why so often like there isn't a, isn't a public response is because you're dealing with individuals, people who are individually affected. And then they do feel like, what can my soul efforts contribute <laughs> to such a gigantic problem? I'll- well, Jody, I really want to kind of build off what you're saying, because that's exactly kind of where Nicosia sees its place, okay. is that 
There's individuals who are upset, they've been harmed, they want to do something, or there's small organizations. And we really like work to amplify that. You know, that's what the corporate advocacy and sort of the dirty dozen list grew out of was people were upset and were like, how can we harness this energy? How can we harness this, you know, desire to act and magnify it? And that's kind of what we do at the summit too, is there's all of these organizations all around the country, all around the world, doing really good work in their community on their issue. How can we connect them all, harness them for certain things? You know, often we'll have a campaign and we will get hundreds of these groups to sign on. And how much more powerful is it when you have that? And often too, it's beautiful. The connections were, you know, I remember at the summit last year, it was like four different organizations realized that they were, you know, within 20 miles of each other and didn't know that they exist. Mm -hmm. And so now they were able to work together and kind of pool their resources and collaborate. So definitely that is like a key mission of Nicosi. Oh yeah. That's fantastic. So yeah, you wrote, you wrote this, was it a piece of legislation? I'm not sure exactly what you wrote. Yeah. So, and you know, it's nice that I'm getting credit for it, but it was not a sole effort. A lot of people helped and a lot of expertise went into that. That was beyond me, but it was a piece of legislation. So I was just the attorney and they're like, you need to (laughs) make this a statue, right? Like you need to make this a draft piece of legislation. But the idea was we had a state that was interested in a legislator that was Mm -hmm. interested in. Let's just start with educating the public, declaring that our state cares about this issue and putting in there information we think the public will care about. And so that's what it, it did. We had experts in all different fields give us the research that already existed, you know, all, full of citations. That's like one of the most important pieces of this is that we have all of these real research back findings of what are the harms, yeah. the public health harms of pornography. You know, what is the effect on children when they're exposed at a young age? How many children are exposed and what age is that? You know, what real world impacts does that have on their learning, on their behavior, on their development? What is the impact on adults who will regularly view it? What is happening actually in the content? How many people are hurt and violent in the content? You know, one of the studies that will always stick with me is there was a study that reviewed, you know, the most mainstream videos, you know, hundreds of videos they went through and 80% of them depicted violent acts towards women. And within those violent acts, the women were most of the time depicted as either a neutral response or positive response. So what is that sending this message that women like violence, right? That it was overwhelming. That was the message that mainstream pornography was sending. And then we see sort of the result of that. Don't so much violence in sexual relationships right now and so much confusion. So that was sort of the point was like, let's get this important information out there declare that our state cares about it and that we want to develop policies that will provide education and support for these issues that we know are affecting our state residents. And you would think that people, you know, would see this and link arms and just say like, yeah, we, we want, we care about public health. We care about children and families and marriages and things like that. But you guys hit a ton of resistance on it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm so encouraged that I think there's 15 states now that have passed this resolution or a similar resolution. It's been updated over the years, but always there's a huge, huge resistance to it. You know, the pornography industry has its lobby is the, the, the reality. They have a lobby, they have nonprofits that exist solely to 
push their message and push back against ours. And there's always the free speech arguments and things like that. But the reality is, what does free speech have to do with like real abuse, real violence that, you know, that that's not speech and filmed rape, like a filmed crime. See, just because there's a camera doesn't make a crime a speech. You know, I think that's the confusion. They're like, if it's in a medium, if it's a video, if it's an image now, it's speech. No, it's not. It is always the crime it's that it is. Crime. And it's, it, it's a documented crime. It's <laughs> evidence. And if anything, it's worse now that it's being documented, distributed. Yep. And, you know, we also have, of course, obscenity laws, which in reality, most of this content would not be protected by the First Amendment anyway. People don't realize that. But again, that's an enforcement issue, unfortunately, that, you know, we just don't have the political will to enforce those federal laws that exist right now. Yeah, that's fantastic. I mean, I, I, I love that you were a huge part of, of putting this together and 15 states. And are there others that are considering it as well? Yeah, yeah, I think so. And, you know, the beauty of it is you sort of lay the groundwork for getting the legislature and the public of that state to understand what we're talking about, to understand, wow, this is really affecting our kids. And then it creates an energy to do more and to to pass something, the next thing, you know, and there's a bill right now that we, you know, we drafted and passed in Utah, and it actually requires smartphone manufacturers to have the default safety, right? That when it's to a child, if you're selling this phone to a child, the parental controls and the filters need to be defaulted on. It's just part of setup. So when you set up your phone, you know, you decide if you want to do your wallet. Do you want to have your location settings on? Do you want to do this, that, and the thing? This is just another setting like parental controls on or off. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're a parent, you could put the passcode, you know, if your kid's 17 and you don't want, do you feel like he doesn't need the controls? He or she, then go ahead, put the passcode on, turn it off. That's up to a parent, but at least have it there by default so that parents don't have to try and figure it out when it's too late so that kids who maybe don't have really involved parents, because the reality is a lot of kids in the foster care system still have phones and they don't necessarily have someone who has the time and the involvement to make sure that phone is safe. So let's just have those default settings on because the truth is, if you try and get a filter after the fact or constantly monitor, it's easier to circumvent by the kids than if the Apple, the manufacturer, just has those Mm -hmm. those settings up front, right? Because then it doesn't matter whose Wi-Fi they're on, the phone is safe, you know, and it's much more difficult to jailbreak the phone. There's always those kids that can do something, but that's a lot more difficult. I mean, we'll protect a vast majority of kids and it's really not much more of a cost for the manufacturer. So that's something that's passed in Utah and we're hoping to pass in other states, just sort of common sense legislation, because we know that unfortunately corporations don't do these things voluntarily. Right. Yeah. Because truthfully, It'd also be really good, probably just for a lot of adults to have a little, you know, little help with some of their impulses. <laughs> Let's be honest, yeah. right? I mean, this is for kids, but like everyone, if you really want to open your phone up or have all those protections removed, because of the truth is a lot of the stuff that it's blocking is good for adults too. And yeah. I, you know, again, yeah. I'm not necessarily wanting everybody to be babysat or pleased, but I do believe that, that there's just a lot of, I think, you know, in terms of it being the default if people really want to open up access to pornographic websites or things like that, that, that I just feel like yeah, let that be a conscious choice, choice right? Let yeah. that be something On. that you... <laughs> right. And then you just have to own your decision. Yeah. So I get that that's not a very popular opinion and, and probably one that obviously is a really hard thing to come by in yeah. terms of having those kinds of protections. 
as defaults. Yeah. And I mean, most people and even parents, I know my parent, of course, I'm old now, but <laughs> like most people don't realize that, you know, you could go onto Pornhub in five seconds. Mm-hmm. There's no like age. They don't, right. they don't even ask if you're 18. Right. You don't even have to click. I'm 18 to enter the site from most of these websites. And I think a lot of parents do not right. understand that, that you are like a Google away, mm-hmm. you know, these kids from the most graphic content. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's really unmanageable, yeah. you know, for most parents to try and deal with that. So, yeah. And, you know, I'm, I mean, we're almost 50 and like the kind of pornography that was available to us when we were kids, like you kind of had to like, you know, it was what today would be considered pretty mild, you know, and, um, well, and the efforts to get to it. Oh, yeah. You know, somebody had to sneak it from a parent or find it in a back alley or go in, I mean, or sneak to the, the specialized section of the blockbuster store. Like it was just so many levels <laughs> many away. And now, yeah, I mean, yeah, a kid yeah, could get on and, you know, Google something about their favorite sport as easily. Yeah. And get the very worst stuff mm-hmm. without yeah. any barriers at all. And so, yeah, you know, 2010, I was, part of the group that brought the Utah Coalition Against Pornography conference down here to St. George. And I chaired that committee for a number of conferences. And what was amazing to me is as people came by the thousands over the years, parents, concerned citizens, church leaders, it's incredible what just people that are concerned or interested in groups of people that start talking about this and gathering like at your conference and other conferences. There just are so many organizations like yours and and tech companies and others that are doing great things. And Mm -hmm. so they need our support. They need our awareness. And so anyone listening, I just encourage you, whatever state you live in, you know, you don't necessarily have to fly to Utah or to a state that has it to start something like this. You can start gathering people and and start connecting with these organizations. And there are people that will help you. I know I have a friend in Texas that they started one just by, you know, getting people together and started just inviting speakers and just held a conference. And it just started to snowball from there. And so whether it's on a, a conference level or in getting involved in Nicosi, on, you know, or, funding things or participating in the dirty dozen thing or any of these things like that, it all makes a huge difference. And you don't have to sit around and be passive and just go, wow, that's a terrible thing and just move on. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, I would encourage anyone, whatever state you are in to reach out because it's amazing. I would say every state, if not every community has someone who's working on this because it affected yeah. them. Yeah. And the truth is that you can get policies passed in your state. I mean, if I think about, you know, we've also, you know, we talked today about some of the legislation that we, you know, really push that we've led. But we also oftentimes people come to us and say, you know, we have this piece of legislation we're interested in. Can you help? And we're just behind the scenes sort of help. And it's always, you know, a parent or somebody who is personally affected yes. makes this happen in their right. state. And the truth is that these representatives, whether it's at a local state level or, you know, even just you're a constituent of a state and this is a federal legislature, they want to hear like what moves them is some powerful story that happened in their state. That really is what makes change. And almost always what's behind a piece of legislation is a a real life true story. And so definitely, you know, don't feel like there's nothing you can do. If something has happened or you even just know someone or you care about this issue, there's a lot of power in that. And, you know, if you want to reach out to Nicosi, we probably know who's in your state to connect you to if you want to get involved in that. If not wanting to partner, you know, we're happy always to provide our model legislation and help you connect. You know, we, we know what the process is. We always try and uplift like the state 
residents to work with their own legislatures, but like we can give you the model, like we can give you the already written out piece of legislation. We kind of guide you through that process. And, you know, if they want experts to testify at a hearing, we're happy to do that, that kind of thing. Um, It's really very doable. And it's always everyday people, honestly, that make this happen. Oh, that's empowering. Yeah. It's not just, you don't have to have qualifications. It's, it's like mm-hmm. they can connect with people no. like you who have yeah. the legal training or who have the, the networks and the experience to get a lot of those, you know, things done, but to get, to get the wheels turning, anybody who cares can get that turning. Mm-hmm. That's Beautiful. exactly right. Yeah. And we, if you need an expert or something, we can be that, but it's, it's always, they want to, the state reps, they want to hear from their own yeah. members. They want to hear yeah. from their own constituents and, you know, no one wants to actually, the reality is like, no state wants the DC group coming in and telling them what laws they need. <laughs> sure. right? that, that they don't. They yeah. actually don't. And we don't. And so we're happy to just be, you know, someone comes to us because they care. We can give them the resources, Perfect. but you can really do amazing things. Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. That's excellent. Fantastic. I have one last question for Danny, but do you have anything okay. else you want to ask? No, her? let's no, let's hear it. So Danny, this is kind of a personal question. I, a lot of people ask me all the time as a therapist, I've been doing this for almost 25 years and I work with really, really tough situations, a lot of sexual betrayal, pornography addiction, things like that. And people like, how do you get up every day and work with this? You know, I have my answers in terms of, you know, knowing what I can do and helping people and seeing results and, you know, knowing that I'm, that what I do makes a difference that gets me up every day. And it, you know, it's super rewarding to be a part of this work, but I have a similar question for you because you work with, with stuff that I think would make most people's heads spin. I mean, you probably seen and heard things that you wish you could unsee and unhear. And as a mom, as a woman, you know, and obviously as a professional, you, you know, you're impacted by this personally. And I just am so curious for our listeners, if you could just share you know, why you get up every day and do this work and how you keep yourself sane amidst all the craziness that you're exposed to every single day. If you can share that with us. Yeah. I mean, I will say this work is definitely not for everyone. And I think that's the most important thing if you're getting involved in this work is kind of not just once, but always doing a lot of self-reflection of, you know, are you processing this in a healthy way and, and all of that. And I just think some people are you know, we all have different gifts. And I think that I was really called to do this work. Like what gets me, I'm, I'm sort of a conflict person anyway. So I'm an attorney. And honestly, you know, when I hear about some piece of injustice or I meet with a survivor and I hear their terrible story, the way that I tend to process it is getting mad and getting energized and wanting to do something about it. And that's really what gets me up. But when I get those little wins and when I'm able to really represent and advocate for that survivor against who I think is the bad actor. That is, I'm just, that gives me life, you know, and I, and I'm really, I feel very passionate about it. You know, when I went to law school, I went, you know, I'd never, I knew I was never going to be working at big law. I did not care about making money. You know, I wanted to use the law to make change. And I definitely feel like I am doing that. And luckily, Nicosi is a wonderful place to work where we talk about these things all the time that, you know, it isn't easy that we share kind of the load with each other, that we take breaks we need to take. You know, I am so thankful that of course, like sometimes working long hours, but there's always that sort of understanding like, okay, you worked and that was tough. And if you need to take some days off, like just take those days off. You know, I have four little kids, four kids under six years old. And if I just need to take them to the doctor, you know, I could take them to the doctor. And that makes a really big difference. You know, when you're doing this kind of work to also feel really appreciated and feel like you can spend the time with your family Mm -hmm. and do those things you need to do for your own 
mental and spiritual well-being, you know, I can't imagine doing anything else. So, well, I'm just, yeah, so grateful for you and all of your team and your gifts and Mm -hmm. your fight because like you said, these bad actors need people who are willing to speak up and stand up against them because doing nothing is exactly what they want. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And, you know, there's nothing more powerful than a survivor, you know, and it's not easy and not everyone can or should do this. But when survivor, like the bravest people are really these survivors, they've gone through this harrowing experience. They've had to endure the unendurable. And they're taking that step because it's not easy. And a lot of people don't realize that, like, even if you're a Jane Doe, trying to engage in a lawsuit over the most sensitive, traumatic thing that happened in your life, that is not these people are not trying to get money. It, no money is worth that. And every survivor will yeah. tell you that. What they're doing is a sacrifice because every single one of these survivors tell us like they just don't want this to happen to someone else. That's what they want. They want change. They want to know, you know what? This happened to me, but I know now because I've stepped out and I have called this out that it's not going to happen to another little girl, another little boy. And so, you know, that is really, I give all the credit this, to the survivors. And I will also say that's what gets me up in the morning too. It's just sort of their attitude and seeing that. And when you get a little bit of change and a little bit of win and you see what a gift that is and what a healing moment that is to survivors, it really is a beautiful thing. Yeah. And and, and you're in a position where you can do something legally, Mm -hmm. like you can actually hold people accountable and affect change at a level that, you know, your average citizen wouldn't be able to. And so it's, you're in a, you're just in such an important position and all of you that work on behalf of survivors. It's just incredible. So it's just, you know, it gave me goosebumps hearing you talk about all that. It's just, yeah. it's so touching at such a deep level. Yeah, it is. Well, thank you so much. And there's, we have a lot of partner law firms we work with who are doing that good work oh, too. And it's encouraging. There actually really are a lot of people who care, a lot of people who care and who are willing to spend their time and expertise fighting this mm-hmm. fight. Oh, so very happy to be working in this movement because it, it is, it's a yes. movement. Yeah. I feel that even just in this conversation. So that's fantastic. So send us off, Danny, let yeah. our listeners, anything else you want to say to wrap us up, direct us as we close up this fantastic interview with you? Sure. Well, please go to our law center website. It's sexualexploitationlawsuits.com. You can read about all our cases, donate if you want to also just get involved and be aware. And if anything like this has happened to you, you can, we have a questionnaire there you can fill out and you'll be you know, contacted by a lawyer right away. So please go to that website and check us out. And thank you so much for having me. Thank you for talking about these important issues. It's been our pleasure. 